0: Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in Verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. When I was growing up, my brother was four years younger than I and there were times when in the afternoon both parents were out working and supposedly we were of the age that we could take care of ourselves for an hour or so without adult supervision But it seems like we always got involved in a fracas with one another and would end up tearing the house apart, fighting each other. And inevitably, Dad would find out about it, and he would administer discipline. He held us accountable. We're told in the Scriptures the same thing regarding our Heavenly Father in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Trials and troubles are an evidence of the personal love that the Heavenly Father has for us. For we read, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son and daughter whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons as well as daughters. Well, maybe somebody says, That sure is bad news. Why, someone may have a disability, and they would say, that mocks this disability that I have. I have striven unto blood and find no comfort. So many days, I'm like I'm in the fetal position with the trials and the troubles that I'm facing. Am I supposed to feel comforted that God is chastening me? I am utterly discouraged, says this individual. And dear Abby, like shall the pastor tell her, well, why don't you just seek out professional help for your problems? Well, maybe she already has. She has medical prescriptions, I know. And yes, there are things this person needs to do, I'm sure, like get out and help somebody else and forget about her troubles and even exercise, walk at least. But she's in a condition where Paul describes it In Romans 5, 6, she feels without strength. So how can a person without strength uh, perform properly? And some have said, well, just ignore her. But to tell a Christian uh, nothing, it just is not good. Somehow there must be a response. Shall I tell her what to do or shall I tell her what to believe? And if she has already received from some plenty of instruction on what to do, but is without strength, shall I tell her what Paul says in that verse, that people without strength need to believe that in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's something to believe. This person is in that same condition that a wise writer says some Israelites were when they were bitten by poisonous Serpents in the wilderness with the shadow of death upon them with almost closed and glazed eyes, they were encouraged to live, look up upon the serpent that was uplifted on the pole because the serpent was a symbol of a Savior who died for the ungodly, who haven't done nor know how to do what they should. I can't force her, I can't force anybody to believe, but, O oh Lord, teach us how to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the slaves and to set at liberty, them that are bruised. Well, here's a morsel of common sense that might help, help us understand something very perplexing that Jesus said. I find this little bit of wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10, where it says, Two are better than one. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe unto him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to lift him up. And that is so true. If you're going to go climb Mount Logan Logan up there in the Yukon, the second highest peak in North America, some 20,000 feet high, you better go with someone else climbing. Otherwise, if you fall in a, in a crevasse, there's no one to lift you out. You need to be roped up to a partner. Take someone with you when you go on the journey. But now just shift gears to a perplexity in the words of Jesus that may trouble many people because Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yet he also tells us that the way to eternal life is so narrow that few there be that find it. He says that in Matthew 7, verse 14. And he urges us in Luke 13, 24, to strive to enter in at the narrow gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Well, it almost sounds like a direct contradiction, doesn't it? We have to strive. We have to deny self. We have to resist strong pressures of temptation. We have to obey God's law when our sinful human nature doesn't want to, and on and on. And the disciples were so overwhelmed with all of the sacrifice that is necessary if one wants to go to heaven, that they even asked Jesus one time in bewilderment, who then can be saved? And then Jesus said, frankly, that it is impossible with men, but all things are possible with God. So now shift gears back to our little homey little tidbit of common sense there in Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one. And when you choose to enter in at the narrow gate, you never walk that pathway alone. Paul said it, I am crucified with Christ. You are never crucified alone. You may think that your trials and your sacrifices are very painful to bear, but you never suffer your Gethsemane alone. You always kneel down with Jesus. You never carry that heavy burden alone. The reason why is that Jesus says his burden is light, and it's because he does the lifting for you. And that's very true, but if you don't believe the good news, then it seems that your trials and your troubles are very heavy and hard to you, and that's all you can focus upon. Maybe that could be my problem, your problem. Most of us have never experienced a genuine depression where you are literally hungry and you have no roof over your head. But Bible prophecy indicates that the final examination for God's people will determine whether a person truly serves God or joins in rebellion against God, and it will be linked to their economic security. The stories in the book of Daniel of a few of God's people remaining loyal in the face of death yes, Daniel in the lion's den, and those three Hebrews in the fiery fir- furnace. They illustrate the dynamics of the final test of the seal of God and the mark of the beast. And God's true people are those who love not their lives unto the death. We read in Revelation 12:11. Their loyalty to him is not merely fanatical stubbornness. They see the honor of God in the fiery trial as more important than their own security. And they will be the ones who will be so highly honored that they will be invited to sit with Christ on his throne as princes of his realm. So what will transform? What is it that will transform world-loving, luxury-loving gourmet diners into such heroes as that they overcome the great dragon by the blood of the Lamb, John writes? in the book of Revelation, by a heart-melting appreciation of what it cost the Son of God to save them, and the comprehension of the reality of his sacrifice on his cross. This alone can motivate people who, by nature, revel in this world's luxury to unite voluntarily with the one who said that he had nowhere to lay his head. You know, overcoming the lure of our greediness, learning to say no to our appetites, and yes, our covetousness, which is sin. This is possible for anyone who will survey the wondrous cross of Christ on which the Prince of Glory died. And what will honor him truly is the witness of those who do so voluntarily, before they are driven to it by losing their wealth in the stock market crash, a world depression, or even persecution. What is your idea of God? Think about it for a moment. Do you wonder what God does all the time? Do you visualize God as hovering, waiting to bring trials and troubles and zap people who do not measure up to his ideals? Is that how you view God? Perhaps you hope that if you work hard enough and do good things that you will be able to see his good favor. Do you see God as an impersonal someone who doesn't know anything about your trials and your troubles of life on this old earth? Do you feel that he is far away, far removed From the struggles of the temptations that you face today. Let's look at an example from the Bible. Look at the situation of Israel at the time of Elijah there. The Hebrew word for Baal, most of the people in the church at that day had gone after Baal worship and they did it oblivious, not understanding what they were doing. The Hebrew word for Baal was the common term for Lord and Master. And just consider the the dramatic demonstrations that were put on by those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. you remember their prayer, so to speak? They were praying for rain, you remember? And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. They were making these long, repetitive speeches. They were petitioning Baal for that long-awaited rain, but to no avail. And then... Yes, Elijah mocked them, suggesting maybe he doesn't hear you cry louder. Reminds me of my oldest, when we were bathing our littlest one, jade on the counter, and it just freaked the little baby out, and little April bent over her and said, I can't hear you. That's what Elijah did to those folks who were pleading for rain from Baal, those prophets, And you remember how they danced around in a frenzy? They were hoping to create some excitement that Baal would notice. And on and on they went in increased outbursts and slashing themselves with knives until the blood was literally flowing freely. And still no fire from heaven came on their sacrifice. And by their demonstration we can learn just how they viewed God just how they understood God, because in their minds they were convinced that they were worshiping the true God. But they revealed by their long speeches, calling Lord, Lord, that they thought that they needed to gain the favor of God. And by their dancing and their frenzy, they thought God is far away. So they tried to get his attention by jumping up and down in a frenzy, By slashing themselves with knives, they surely thought that God needed someone to make an appeasement to Him, to make a sacrifice, because He was surely must be angry at them. He wasn't giving them rain. Now there are many theories about God floating around today, and maybe you see God in one of the ways. I've mentioned, I hope not, but nevertheless, God's last day people, yes, those of us who are living on earth just before the coming of Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven, are going to need to have a clear understanding that the Son of God became flesh, that he dwelt among us, who is the express image of God, that God is not far off, that he is nigh unto us. He does not need our long speeches. He doesn't need our frantic running about, even in doing the good things to impress him. No, he does not even need us to try to appease him. Jesus Christ is already born the full penalty for the sins of every human being. In fact, Paul says it in Hebrews 2.9 that Christ tasted death for every man and woman and child. So you don't need to wake up in the night in a cold sweat wondering if our Father in heaven accepts you because he tasted death for you, dear soul. We have a God who is not far off. He is near you, and he will be in you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to realize his closeness to him, and appreciate his love and sacrifice for the human race, we will no longer call him Lord or Master. We will call him Husband. Husband. We will know that he loves us. And we will appreciate how close he had to come to save us. And we will love him too. Have you ever experienced a massive assault on your physical integrity, maybe on your body, or maybe on your spirit, an outrage that has been inflicted upon you. And you begin to wonder, does he sympathize with uh, others who suffer such painful outrages? Yes, Jesus experienced assaults upon his physical being, they beat him, they flogged him, they spit in his face, they insulted him with all manner of dignities to his person. you think that Jesus has forgotten about that, how the world treated him? He hasn't forgotten that. And including a massive assault on his very, the integrity of his body through the crucifixion, his death. But we know that in each instance it was Satan's deliberate murderous intent to use his human agents. Did Jesus ever suffer an accident, some disaster to his person that was not deliberately satanic in origin? I don't read of any such accident. When the devil attacks you, there is something comforting in the knowledge. But when it's purely accidental, do we have some parallel? In the Bible, well, maybe yes. There is Paul's tragedy in Second Corinthians one, when he says that he had the sentence of death in himself, and he despaired even in life of life. There's no mention that Satan caused it. Uh, Paul wasn't in some kind of a chariot crash. It was simply a trial that came upon him inexplicably, and the temptation was severe for him to just give up in despair in his loneliness. But the good news is that Paul took the temptation to despair to be a call to believe in God who raises the dead. And furthermore, the experience was shared by many persons who gave thanks, we are told. And best of all, we have this blessed story of a man of God, a prophet, the Apostle Paul, who had to undergo the same kind of inexplainable trials that often we are called upon to endure that come upon us by accident. Have you ever had opportunity to consider what you would do if you believed the truth of the gospel and there was nobody to stand with you? You were utterly alone in believing the truth of the gospel. The final conclusion that one comes to after some struggle is to reaffirm faith in the truth of the gospel rather than in the numbers or in the human comfort or in the human assistance. Dear friends, truth is no less truth when it is forsaken by the majority. Nor is it any less truth when forsaken by everyone. Nor to carry it to its ultimate conclusion, truth is no less truth when apparently forsaken by God Himself. Jesus died for the truth, and He said, My God, why have you forsaken me? The truth is still the truth whether everyone forsakes you, didn't the Son of God cry out, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? If the doctrine of the cross be true, which no one with any regard for the truth can deny, it is certain that the experience of the cross requires a time when one going to the cross is forsaken by all men, by all of them, and apparently, but never really, by God. There is no faith, there is no appreciation for the sacrifice of the love of Christ where there is sight. No belief where there is clear window as to proceeding to the future. For faith to be perfected in the human soul The faithful one must go through an experience of being apparently forsaken of God that he might indeed learn what true faith is and what it means to hang the helpless soul entirely upon the truth of God. Such is a tremendous conflict. It is a wrestling with unseen powers of evil and darkness. It's a torture of the soul and the heart. In such a time, the soul must become independent of his human concepts of God as being with him in his struggles. He will find that there is something to which he must be loyal that is above, quote, God, unquote. Something to which God himself bows in submission. I've been thinking a little bit some. I was reading this author who was a Roman Catholic, and he was was suggesting of a pyramid, with things at the bottom, above that man, and above all on the pyramid was God, uh, whoever that might have been. So I drew a little pyramid in the margin, and I tried to work it out, and I came to the conclusion that if the Roman Catholic man was right, uh, is right, he is right, but I knew that he wasn't right. He had to be wrong because he's a Roman Catholic, And so what? I could only decide that the top of the pyramid is not above all. Anything to which God yields or surrenders is necessarily above him. Dear friends, that which is above God himself, to which God has submitted himself to, is the cross. That is the ultimate truth. And one's belief in God at a time of utter forsakenness will not hold his faith. It will be the belief in the cross that will show them who the true God is. The truth of the gospel. So I drew a little cross at the top of the pyramid. Because I understand that God surrenders himself to the truth. God surrenders himself to the truth, and the soul who becomes a man after his own, God's own heart will also surrender to the truth and to the cross, though in doing so he is apparently forsaken by God. Do you hear what we're saying? He will indeed be forsaken by the God of which this Roman Catholic speaks to place God, above all, is to give Satan the very position that he has been seeking for so long. See the point? I think that is how God tests us. And certainly that is how he tested old father Abraham, who was the father of all of us, if we believe. Abraham believed God, but God put the test before him of the cross. Because God submits to the cross. And for Abraham to be the father of all who believe must submit to the cross also. You think about this. And the cross means utter forsakenness by God himself. That's what Jesus went through. Apparently forsaken of God. And in fact, I have gone so far in my thinking as to realize that it is in this experience of bowing to the ultimate submission to truth and the cross when it means apparently being forsaken by God that that is the point where human beings indeed become partakers of the divine nature and they become a true son and daughter of God. And as long as we are conscious of being under a patronizing, approving, God who wields a big stick, who defends us from our trials and our troubles, I think that the quality of our faith is defective. Truth and the cross really need to be issues with us, what we live by. It is an issue merely of being true to God. All sorts of delusions and misconceptions can result as Depending on a God that's in our mind, and it makes a detour around the cross when the true God submits himself to the cross. And so we hear it all the time. Why does God bring all these trials and troubles upon me? Because we have this conception of our God who's going to have a big stick and get rid of those troubles for us, and it's a false God. It's our Baal that we worship. God himself submits to the cross. And to become a partaker of the divine nature means to submit ourselves to the cross. I am crucified with him. God's end time remnant are to learn some lessons of suffering from the past 6,000 years of the history of the gospel. You know, the saviors chosen in all ages have also suffered trials as God's remnant who will become the 144,000. I want to talk just a moment about the 144,000 relationship to the cross and submitting to that. Because the people of God from all past ages have suffered with Christ. Uh, I think about Job. I think about David. We can think about any number of folks who have suffered with Christ in the past. And by anticipation, the people of God of past ages have endured trials, such as the 144,000 will experience they act, or actually known the fellowship of Christ and his sufferings. They have tasted the same, but only the 144,000 will actually drink of that cup and be baptized with that baptism. We are told that they will stand in a time without an intercessor, through the final outpouring of God's judgments, and therefore they are indeed unique. Individuals of past ages have approached unto a measure of devotion and maturity and faithfulness to Christ, which is implicit in a bride's relation to her husband, but never has a community of God's people attained to that experience. It is as doubtful that even individuals have ever known it fully as it is doubtful that individuals have in the past ever stood without an intercessor, despite the fact that some have tasted something of it, even as did Job. Hence, one may consider that the saints of all ages who have suffered with Christ are as much a part of the 144,000 as the church of all ages has been the bride of Christ. It can be so only by the faith of anticipation. They anticipated a community of 144,000, a body. The unique features of the experience of the 144,000 are such that this group alone are qualified to enter into a mature relationship with Christ on the basis of an intimate experience, an experience such as no other community has ever had. They are the first fruits unto God. And to the Lamb. And a bride enters into an experience with her husband such as no other woman has ever had with him. And who is this company? To call them the guests at the wedding would be absurd. Inspiration says that the people of God cannot be represented as the bride, the bride is expressly said to be the New Jerusalem. But we have other inspired statements just as emphatic and categorical that the church is the bride, the lamb's wife. The key to the difficulty must be the 144,000. In Great Controversy, page 427, it says, In the Revelation, the people of God are said to be guests at the marriage supper. And she cites Revelation 19, verse 19. But in verses 7 and 8, they have just spoken of the bride as one who hath made herself ready. And by virtue of having made herself ready, has made it possible for the marriage of the Lamb to to happen, to come. And herself to be granted the fine, arrayed in fine linen, namely the righteousness of saints. So here we have three personalities involved in three verses in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. You have the Lamb, you have the Bride, and you have the people of God. And the latter are those which are called unto the marriage supper. Now maybe we've been slow to recognize this problem, but we have assumed that the material city of the New Jerusalem is the Bride. And if that's the case, that involves us in some serious difficulties because to identify the city, the actual city of New Jerusalem, makes Christ to be an idolater who is in love with a material city of gold and precious stones and pearls and the like, something which can be made and created by a word from his lips. As though a bridegroom loves the apartment more than he loves the woman who is to dwell in the apartment with him. And this material city is magically endowed with the capacity to make itself ready. And thus, by clear implication, the failure to get all of the celestial bricks laid or all of the mortar in place must be understood as the reason for the long delay in the arrival of the marriage of the Lamb. The heavenly contractors are behind schedule, or the angels have become bogged down in the judicial processes of the investigative judgment so that they haven't been able to wind up their business as yet. I'm speaking very baldly. No one dares to put things in such crude terms. But that's what we mean when we say God isn't yet ready to bring the second advent or hasn't yet got around to the names of the living. And the truth must necessarily escape us that the one who has not yet made herself ready is not a material city, but the company on earth who profess to be God's people in the last days. So this confusion in the identifying of the bride of Christ contributes to their lukewarmness. But the difficulties are removed when we understand that the 144,000 have a distinctly unique experience, an experience that is parallel to and consistent with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, which is also a distinct, unique ministry known as the final atonement. This company are the first fruits unto God, into the Lamb. First in uniqueness, and also first in point of time in that they are the only group to attain to that maturity of experience that qualifies them to be Christ's mate. No other company of God's people in all the ages past have been so qualified, and hence they are guests at the wedding. The capital and the representative of the kingdom is the New Jerusalem, but what is the city When Jesus cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, how often would I have gathered thy children and ye would not? Was he addressing the tiles on the roof and the stones and the walls and the cobbled pavements? Your home is the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. Your home is not the timber and the masonry in your temporary house. So we can conclude, therefore, that as individuals, the people of God of all ages are guests at the wedding. But that company that is qualified to sympathize with Christ fully through a mature experience, that must be the bride at the wedding. And a clear understanding of the cleansing of the sanctuary alone can impart to God's people the motivation that is so desperately needed to finish his work on earth. A Christ-centered motive must replace our self-centered motive for the finishing of the work. How often do we hear the prayer, Lord, finish thy work so we can go home to glory? How can God's people enter into a conjugal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as a mate until they consider the finishing of the work with his viewpoint rather than their own selfish viewpoint. His honor and glory is more important than our reward. And the 144,000 must therefore be those who have come to see something more important than reward for themselves. Moses experience long ago in Exodus chapter 32 verse 32 must be prophetic for theirs. He was willing to sacrifice his eternal life for the people. He said, I'll give it to them. The relinquishing of thus of reward is agape. That is agape. And it's true. The Bible predicts a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time, and Jesus also predicted it, as does Revelation, yes, and many prophets and apostles. Could the final time of trouble be related to technological failures? If so, it would follow that preparedness consists maybe of better electronics. No, the Bible paints a different picture of the final time of trouble. It likens it to Jacob's nighttime struggle with The angel, when in near despair, he felt that God could not bless him, but then he chose to believe that God would bless him and believing in the dark that his character was love. And in the final crisis, God's people will endure a similar trial of faith. They will drink of the cup that Jesus drank of. They will be baptized with his baptism it will be a trial of faith more severe than Jacob's. Jesus said that the world will hate them and it will appear to them, so far as outward circumstances are, that God has forsaken them. On his cross in the darkness, Jesus could see not one ray of light. There was not an iota of evidence on which he could rest his faith. He was made to be sin for us, who knew no sin. And so, as Martin Luther said, he felt the guilt and the condemnation of every sinner on earth. He was cast out of the universe into that outer darkness where he had said there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he heard no welcome voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Heaven was silent. The father apparently turned his back on him. No angel could minister to him. There was nothing but darkness and despair. But even though there was not even a visible twig that he could hold on to above the precipice, he chose to believe in the character of God and in his promises in his acceptance when everything seemed to say there was no acceptance, only rejection. And so the real problem in the time of trouble yet to come will not be merely no electricity and no water and no gasoline. It will be the ultimate trial of faith that the bride of Christ will experience, that white-hot fusion of human hearts to the divine heart of the Son of God, that ultimate believing despite total spiritual darkness. They will live in the sight of a holy God as though there were no intercessor. Don't run away from the Lord. He's trying to prepare you right now. That's why he is a father who permits trials and troubles in order to discipline you so that you will put the cross above all concepts you have about God. Amen. What's more important, our selfish victory or his honor and vindication? The agape that he infuses in our life will demonstrate we're but willing to say goodbye to eternal life forever so that he may receive his reward. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.